Welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Aaron Bess. And I'm Eva Ivashuk, and we are pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin. Throughout this podcast, we've discussed various ways the European Union plans to achieve an ambitious transformation to become the world's first climate-neutral continent by 2050. And with our guests, we've spoken mostly about the policy issues involved in that transformation. But today, in this episode, we're shifting our focus. What will it be like to live in that future? What can it be like? What could it look like, feel like, in terms of how our cities and communities sustain us? all across Europe, in all its diversity. Today, we're talking about aesthetics, creativity, design, architecture, and a program called the New European Bauhaus. This program aims to bridge science, technology, art, and culture in service of sustainability, beauty, and inclusivity. To help us learn more about these issues and the New European Bauhaus initiative, we have two guests joining us today. First of all, we have with us Alina Uzupan, who is head of unit New European Bauhaus at the Joint Research Center of the European Commission. And we also have with us Eduard Cabey, who is an architect with the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia and the winner of a recent New European Bauhaus Prize for Spain's first 3D printed building using Earth. Alina and Eduard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alina, my first question is for you. I am familiar with Bauhaus as a design movement that was active during the 1920s or so. Could you please tell us what inspired the creation of a new European Bauhaus and how does it align with the broader vision of the European Union? Yes, thank you very much and uh, thank you for the invitation. Well, as you said, the historical Bauhaus started in 1919 at uh, a moment of deep transformation towards the modern societal and industrial era. And it became quickly a global movement, bringing together artists, designers, architects and craftspeople to bring a new philosophy of change. And like, uh, yeah, almost one or a bit more than 100 years ago, also today, we face a moment of deep change, deep challenges, and where we have to use innovative materials to tackle these challenges. So creativity bringing art together with industrial transformation with people on the ground are still, if you want, values and driving forces of today. And this is what lies at the core of the new European Bauhaus movement. And actually in 2020, so really almost 100 years difference, the president of the European Commission announced the launch of the new European Bauhaus initiative. This initiative is supposed to be the soul of the Green Deal. Because we do not want a green transformation in Europe that delivers just on sustainability. It has to be a green transformation that is inclusive, which means bringing people, bringing neighborhoods, communities together into this transformation. It also means it's a transformation that needs to be affordable. And then it's also a transformation that needs to be beautiful. And beauty is understood not only from the aesthetic point of view, but also in terms of quality of experience, because it has to be a long-lasting transformation. Edward, you are an architect and you actually work on sustainability-related topics. How does this need to transition to climate-neutral society is influencing the contemporary architectural design and practice? Um, 
It's a very interesting question. I mean, first of all, in, you know, in the architectural sector and in the, the construction world, we have become conscious that building is one of the most harmful practice for climate. That puts the architect in a very strange situation, right? The more we build, potentially the more we damage. So that means that in terms of architectural design, we have to radically rethink the way that we do things. No? Maybe first of all, in Europe, there is actually not such a need to build at the moment because we have a necessary amount of buildings ready. Many of them are unused. Many of them are maybe unadapted to the requirements or to the necessities of contemporary societies, but many of them exist. So from an architectural design perspective, that means that we need to think about readapting and about reusing patrimony and equipment that already exists. And also, of course, there's the situation in Ukraine where over the years to come, also a lot of rebuilding effort is going to have to happen. So there is different situations in different locations. But what we know overall is that we need to very seriously rethink how to build to make sure that this does not have such an important damaging effect on the environment. There are many ways to go about this. What we are very much focusing here in the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia is to look at the question of materials. We need to think when we build that the materials come from somewhere. There is embedded energy in the materials that we use. We talk more and more about something called non-extractive architecture. So whenever we do a building, we have to think that we make a hole somewhere else and we have to think about the consequences of that hole. Is this going to create you know, a negative situation in a natural environment? Is it going to create some harm in a community, for example? So today when we build, we need to think about where the material comes from. And of course, that takes us a little bit to this question of what we are actively working on, which is to try to work with materials that are often biosourced and that are also not contaminant. Alina, Edward just mentioned some of the potential contributions that architecture can make. Maybe you could help us understand what some of the specific needs are now in the EU. So what are the pressing environmental and social challenges that the new European Bauhaus aims to address? Indeed, I think Edward has hinted to to some of these challenges. Well, uh, you know, we just had the COP conference. First and most important, climate change continues to happen. Uh, emissions uh, still are not where they should be. So the whole uh, question of green transformation and delivering on climate change remains pressing. I would say even tougher to address is the question of circularity. So the impact on the environment, not only emissions, but everything else in terms of resourcing, in terms of costs, in terms of what would transformation entail for everything, including jobs, people, environments, communities, and so on. And I must say the European Union has mobilized unprecedented amounts of financial support for that, but also providing the legislative framework, so the famous Fit for 55 package tackling mostly the mission question. And then we have the Circular Economy Action Plan and the Eco Design Framework tackling the circularity question. But of course, there is a huge step to make from having the legislation and even mobilizing some funding, which will never be able to cover the immense costs we have, to getting that change happen in practice and happen fast. And this brings us also to a third challenge, which is linked to people and communities. And what we have seen also recently, if you want, and more and more in the last months, maybe even years, it's a growing disconnect. There is the acceptance of 
people, I think everywhere we go, yes, of course, we want greener environments. Of course, we see the extreme events. Uh, we see this extreme climate events actually affecting exactly the most marginalized parts of our societies. But at the same time, when that change, the content of that change affecting the job, affecting the building where you are living in, affecting your daily life, your family, your children, hits you, then that acceptance suffers and the disconnect continues. And without the right involvement of people and communities, this change gets rejected. And also, if I may say, maybe the choices made, you know, in every space, in every community, maybe it's not the right one and it would be different and still deliver had communities and people be part of that, not only consulted, but part of that, part of the solution. And this is where the Bauhaus comes in. The people question, because we work with communities, we work bottom up, we want people and authorities and stakeholders to co-design together their future of their neighborhood. We also come to deliver on circularity because we help with filtering those solutions that are not only sustainable and what is closest to people than not their built environment, but we filter those solutions through this work, through sustainability, as well as inclusion and affordability, as well as aesthetics, beauty, cultural heritage, and identity on the ground. So, uh, Edward, your Tova project is pushing forward uh, in thinking about new approaches. Uh, you created Spain's first 3D-printed building in that project using Earth. I'm very curious about that. Could you tell us a bit more about the project and how it's significant in terms of sustainable architecture? Sure. So um, to say a couple of words about it, what we do is we use a very new technology, which is the one of 3D printing. So it's a robotic technology. It's a technology that is not yet very much used, you know, in the construction industry, even though it's coming quickly. It's a technology that is very digital, let's say. And we use it together with a material that is soil or earth, no? which is a material that has been a construction material for millennia. It's been a little bit less used maybe in the past century, especially in Europe, but before that it was an extremely common building material. So earth is interesting for the main reason why we find it very interesting is sustainability, actually, because first of all, we can build with a material that is kilometer zero. Tova was constructed with material that comes from five meters away. We're not talking about 100 meters or, you know, about the next neighborhood. The material comes very much from where it is being made. So that means that there's no transport cost or energy implications there. The next thing is that earth, in order to become a building material, does not need any embedded energy. You can take it out of the ground. What we do is we add some fibers to it but then we can use it directly. No? Therefore, unlike cement, for example, it does not need to go through an oven and there is no carbon involved there. The next consequence is that whatever we build is therefore non-contaminant. If the building needs to be destroyed, it can be destroyed and it can be left there. The material doesn't contaminate the place because it comes from there and it was not processed. No? So for all of these reasons, working with Earth enabled a building to have an extremely small carbon footprint which we believe this is what we need. Great. And broadening that a little bit, you know, thinking about innovative building techniques generally, how could creative architectural solutions address the challenges that uh, Lena has identified? 
in the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia, where we are developing the project, we are very much exploring the potential of new technologies to see how they can help us to make better buildings. We don't forget about the past because it's very useful in many cases, but we are also looking at how to adapt to new solutions. In the case of 3D printing, which is a digital technology or it's a robotic technology, one of the advantages or one of the things that we like about it is we have a certain flexibility in the design. No, this is not a machine like the ones that we had in the industrial revolution or in the conveyor belt where you produce many times the same object. You can actually produce many times different objects thanks to the fact that this is computer generated. That means that we can have a wall that varies thickness, for example. We can have a wall that changes direction. So we believe that through such a technology, we can escape a model of over-standardization that we believe we have in the construction sector. No? Because of economy and because of industry, we tend today to try to build always a very similar building, whether we are in a hot climate, whether in a cold climate, or whether we are in a social structure or in a different social structure. We like to question the fact that every building needs to be the same. We like to think that every building needs to be absolutely adapted to the climate in which it is, to the social structure in which it is, and also to the availability of resources. And we believe, for example, that this 3D printer can enable us to do this building that adapts to the need of the user. Uh, Alina, from the perspective of your team, you have been identifying and recognizing such innovative designs. Could you tell us what made the Edward Stoffa project a standout example of the principles of New European Bauhaus? Yes, with pleasure. I was in Spain uh, some months ago and was very impressed to see a presentation of the Tova project and what they managed to achieve. They've been one of the winners of the New European Bauhaus Prizes, which first and foremost uh, recognize outstanding um, innovation. I think there are several elements which make Tova projects stand out. First, it bridges high-tech with no-tech. Uh, or, you know, high-tech and natural materials, which is maybe one of the core pioneering values or approaches that emerge in the New European Bauhaus movement, because we have to be circular, we have to work with what we have. But at the same time, it does not mean going back to old crafts practices. It means taking that and bridging that with the technology we have to get the results we need tackling the size of the challenge that we have. So that I think is the best or maybe most original, um, let's say, idea to bring these two edges together. And in doing so, first, it's a strong research and innovation component, which is very important for the New European Bauhaus movement because this is the transdisciplinary approach, obviously. We spoke about people, we spoke about technologies, we speak about materials, but at the core, it's a research and innovation element. This is the creation of solutions, which then can be tested, can be scaled up, can be adapted. And here, the TOVA project delivers very well. It's also an example of an economic opportunity for industry. We discussed about the industry, and you mentioned it, Edward, and not every building needs to be the same, but we need technological solutions that allow for adaptation that allow for quick change and that allow also for an affordable 
solution, as I said, and using resources that are kilometer zero or around, it's a very important element. Also, we are going through as European, you know, continent, quite some critical materials challenges that we have, which impact on the resilience or the potential of a growing resilience of Europe. So again, finding solutions which bring high technology together with materials that we have here, it's also extraordinary to have feasible solutions for circularity that are also economically an opportunity for the industry and inevitably for the society as well. Thank you very much, Lina. We would also like to learn more about the Bauhaus Initiative and how it works. So next to the prizes project that you talked about, what are the ways that New European Bauhaus fosters innovation and collaboration for its different programs? In my unit, we are cross-cutting from many points of view. Bauhauses such as the notion is cross-cutting, but then also our activity is cross-cutting. The first and foremost, as I said in the beginning, this is a bottom-up initiative. So it's very important that we work with the community, that we work bottom-up. We have what is called the New European Bauhaus Lab which allows members of the community to come together, to put together projects, to find partners elsewhere, and we foster that dialogue. We also have representatives of the member states because they are also the decision makers. We also have a high-level roundtable of very recognized, well-known architects and activists and specialists and researchers that guide us into tailoring, if you want, this dialogue and this direction of change. So that is one element, which is the infrastructure, if you want, supporting this movement. Then there is an element of translating these values in practice and operationalizing what means European Bauhaus, sustainability, inclusion, and beauty. And for that, we came with a number of tools. One is the European Bauhaus Compass, which can be used by anybody to inspire a project, should you want that project to be in line with the Bauhaus values, be it in the built environment, be it in a working with the community, and so on. Uh, we are also working and taking this further now into a sort of a labeling project. So buildings can label themselves that they fulfill certain criteria. This is under work, ideally finished next year. And we are also working with the European Investment Bank to have investment guidelines, so to translate these values into an investment language to be able to attract also private investment in this kind of projects. And the third, if you want, uh, pillar of our work is that of investment and policy support. And here, so far, uh, you know, the new European Bauhaus has benefited and continues to benefit from nine European programs from Horizon Innovation, which is the core and uh, for the moment the one that finances the most of the project, to Cohesion Funds, to Digital Europe Program, to several others European level programs and also member state funding to support, if you want, this kind of projects picking up. So these are the three kinds, if you want, of activity that we do together. And Edward, from your perspective, what mechanisms of the European Bauhaus help to support and foster innovative projects like your project? For us to win the prize of the new European Bauhaus last year meant a lot. First of all, because it gave a lot of exposure to the project. We are a relatively small team. We are working on this project since about 10 years now. And you have to understand that it's an extremely experimental project. No, At the beginning, we were working with uh, small desktop printers, printing with clay, uh, printing with clay because we could break it and do new prints with it, so using the, the recyclability of it. 
During these nine years, our project has been growing, growing, growing. We started to do one-to-one prototype, and then eventually we got to Tova. This took us nine years, but, but yes, I want to stress for a moment the kind of experimental character of the research. And the reason why we put it forward is that there are a few people in our teams that really believe that this is a possibility, but there's so much to cover in order to get there. For us to have been recognized you know, by the new European Bauhaus, to have been recognized by the European Commission, it's an incredible sign of trust. And it's very serious people telling us that our little experimental cell here in Barcelona is doing something that is valuable. That is for us extremely important. It gives us a lot of energy. I think above the exposure and above all the contacts that we have been making you know, through the gaining of this prize, it's the fact that we feel that what we do has a value in the context of today. So Alina, one of the things that strikes me about the new European Bauhaus is the way it's almost coherent with the ideas it's supporting. I mean, the idea that the government would do something creative to foster creativity is actually quite interesting thing about it, but I bet that comes with some challenges. And that's what I'd like to turn to now. What, what are the major challenges facing the new European Bauhaus being the sort of creative initiative that it is? Uh, there are quite a few, you are right. Um, well, first and foremost, we are a very new initiative, uh, even at European level. So as I mentioned, this was launched in 2020. So we are now three years in this journey. And obviously, there are many things to think about internally and externally. First and foremost, we have started very small. So it was a bottom-up approach. Three people in the European Commission carrying out a major co-creation process lasting six months to bring communities together, to agree together what the new European Bauhaus should be, what values it should put forward. Then, of course, there is the question how to do that from the European Commission with the communities and everyone else involved. Being transdisciplinary meant, of course, breaking silos. And breaking silos is not easy not at European level, not at national level or any level. It's a new way of working. If you're not careful, it can be a huge administrative burden. And then the process in a way defeats the results and the purpose. We have learned, if you want, in these years, and we are still in the process of doing that better. Um, Then, of course, it's in a way a new concept a new way of thinking, a new way of policy making, a new way of investing. And that requires also quite a bit of explanation. And that's why translating these values that we have into the how and where and when, it's been also quite challenging and continues to be. It's a work to do internally, if you want, with many policy departments of the Commission. It's a work to do with the member states. It's a work to do even with some communities who have not discovered yet what the Bauhaus needs or could offer. And then, I mean, going further, we are now facing, if you want, this transformation from being a young child growing up, discovering new things, becoming now a full grown-up movement, needing, you know, the right predictability, multi-year approach, sort of directionality, moving from experimenting into, okay, can we define some long-term goals? When do we get to that kind of stage of systemic transformation that we would want to bring in Europe? And this requires 
policy change. It requires funding change and changing the approach to investment as well, moving into a multi-annual perspective, bringing this, all these sources of funding even more coherently together, working with so many actors. So these are things, if you want, that preoccupy us looking into the future. Not always easy, but we are, as you said, trying to do something creative. And I'm confident that together with our partners and stakeholders, we will get into this new phase in a very consolidated, solid Bauhaus movement across Europe. So, uh, Edward, turning from the architecture of policy to the architecture of architecture, how do you navigate this balance between your innovative design ambitions and the need to be sustainable? Is that, I imagine there could be synergies, but also trade-offs. Tell us a little bit about what that's like. In our work, we use innovative design in order to try to target very pragmatic solutions. For example, at the moment with the 3D printer and with the soil, we are making walls that can have cavities. That is something that if you work with another technique, a very common technique in the earth construction is round earth, where basically you create a formwork and then you fill up the formwork with earth and then you pressure the material. So it creates a very solid and a very massive wall. Um, when we work with the printer, we are essentially creating a lot of cavities. No? You have to think a little bit. Our walls turn up to look a little bit like a cardboard surface where we have different thin surfaces that are meandering and encapsulating pockets of air in order to create a wide wall. These cavities is something that we can use for many reasons. First of all, they can be climatic cavities. We can put insulation within them. We can put air within them but we can also pass fluids. No? We can use them as natural ventilations. We can pass water. We can pass electricity through them. So the huge amount of creativity, which is uh, the one that you have when you, you, know, you can draw really how the thickness of the wall works and you can make it different in the south orientation or in the north orientation, can very much serve in order to solve incredibly pragmatic issues like the one of climate control or like the one of how the services of a house can work. Have you looked at using building rubble in a similar way, like leftover deconstructed building parts and how that could, through robotic or printing technology, be incorporated? We don't have a, a kind of great amount of research into the use of rubbles because we are very focused on Earth and that takes us a lot of time. But there is definitely some direction there. And an example that I can give you is the one of the geopolymer. Geopolymer is the residues from the cement industry. You know, it's all the dust and all the particles that get produced that don't get sold or that don't go to the market. This normally gets thrown away. This is something that we sometimes use. It is contaminant. It's not as good as earth. So we try not to use it, but sometimes we use it because it has a great advantage. It makes the earth much more resistant to water. So we have been working with some of these residues into the lower part of our walls where a building is much more vulnerable when it comes to water erosion and to floods potentially to create there a fragment of the wall that is, let's say, less recyclable and more contaminant, yet nevertheless uses recycled elements from the industries. Yeah, very interesting. Fascinating. Really incredible work. <laughs> Um, we are slowly approaching the end of our conversation and we love to ask all our guests for their recommendations, either for policymakers or for young people who are interested in making an impact. My first question is to you, Alina. You spoke about the 
so many changes that are needed to really address the challenges that we are facing. What would you say are your key recommendations to policymakers that would help to, first of all, realize the vision of the new European Bauhaus and also support using creativity and design to address the sustainability challenges that we're facing in the European Union? Um, tough question, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think, yeah, uh, maybe two or three things. First, I think we should not forget changes about people. So regardless of how much analysis there is there and how much logic is in there, change happens when people agree to it and uh, when people are part of it. Because if not, even if it's not in the moment, later there is a pushback that then uh, affects these plans. So the best way to go ahead in the future is to remember Europe is about people, it's about united in diversity, it's about values, it's about identity. And this needs to be part of the policy making solutions that we put forward, regardless the domain and even more, especially when it comes to green transformation and all these elements that affect our communities and neighborhoods. Then it's clearly also, and from this comes a recommendation of doing policy differently. It is never only a green issue or only a social issue or only a materials issue. It is a cross-cutting issue because whatever solution, again, we put forward has implications across the board. And this means getting the right way forward means looking also sideways, not only backwards and front ways. The new way of thinking policy, and it is challenging because, as I said, you need to balance potential administrative hurdles with getting these elements in. And then, I mean, I know you didn't ask me, but also for those people who want to come on board, please do and believe you can make a change. It's only by, you know, our each individual efforts, putting them together that we will get there. So it's a full invitation, if I may, to join this movement from whatever point you are, a university, researcher, a citizen, or, you know, company out there. Let's become part of a good solution that we can put forward. So Edward, Alina is inviting everyone to get on board, to be part of this transformation. Thinking specifically about architects, maybe young architects, do you have advice for designers and architects who would like to follow in your footsteps and contribute to climate neutral EU through their architectural practice and designs? Yes, absolutely. I think, first of all, it would be great if they come and join us. So you are also all welcome for a visit or even to do some work with us. No, we're always really open to work with many people. And one of the things that is very nice about this project, in a way, is that there is actually nothing that we need to patent, which means that all of the work that we do, we are trying to publish it as much as possible. And they are offsprings of the work that we do. There is a WASP in Italy that is also 3D printing with Earth. There is a team in the United States. Now we have an alumni student that is in the University of Hong Kong uh, that is also printing with natural material. We have some old former students in India. And the more of this happens, of course, the better. No? So we wish that the more we do this, the better. It's not about protecting, it's about exposing, it's about sharing, and it's about inviting people to do it. And if I can give an advice to, you know, to young professionals or to students from our kind of short experience is 
when you arrive in architecture school at the moment, what your teachers tell you is that the world doesn't really need buildings and that building is actually damaging. So this is a very strange paradox for the profession and for the students. I imagine that for them, it must be devastating. I think today there is an absolute need to reinvent the way that we work, to reinvent the materials that we work with, to reinvent the way that the house is structured, whether you know certain space need to be shared, to reinvent the way that we live. No? And I think this word of invention is in the field of architecture and in many others, it's great because it implies experimentation. It means we have to try, we have to test, we have to take risks. At the same time, we have to be serious, but we have to try to find new solutions. And I can tell you that this is something that is extremely enjoyable as a practice. No? So I absolutely encourage the young generation to search, to look, and to try to find solutions through their hard work. Well, this discussion has been a lot of fun. Alina and Edward, thank you for joining us today on Green Deal, Big Deal, to discuss the new European Bauhaus and the role of creativity and design in greening the EU. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you also from my side. So, Aaron, I know you were excited about doing this interview. What were your highlights from the conversation we just had? I was looking forward to this one, and it did not disappoint. I love the three goals together, like sustainable, beautiful, and inclusive. And also the, the way Elena spoke about the people aspect. You know, this need to sort of bring everybody along, and also the need to create a future that is a desirable one. It's going to be different, and change is always challenging, and figuring out the way that future can be one that we want to have. You know, we've talked again and again in the podcast about how fast this transition needs to be in order to meet the ambitious goal of climate neutrality by 2050. And so that's an important design problem that needs to be solved, not just in the technologies that are going to be rolled out, but also in the policy realm. And then I think the other interesting thing that I'll mention now, and then I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> have a turn, uh, is this is sort of this zero kilometer aspect of the Tova project. Just the, just, the, I guess the idea is kind of beautiful. The a building that sort of rises up out of the very ground that it's based in and can return to that same spot. So obviously that's not the solution for everything. We'll need a diversity of uh, building solutions, but I found that rather poetic actually. Yeah. What I found fascinating about that is that it combines a solution that is ultra local with a solution that is ultra global. Because if you think about the 3D printed designs, you could send a design like this to another corner of the globe for mm. them to use it there using their local materials. So I think that's the beauty of the times that we live in, that we are in this very connected society all around the world. But at the same time, we are reflecting about the last 200 years of development of our civilization and thinking, you know, maybe we have to look, you know, closer to us and change the way we do things if we want to continue sustaining life on the planet. Mm -hmm. I really also, uh, similarly to you, found the people question so interesting and working with environmental policy, I think we see this issue of acceptance popping over and over again. And I love how the new European Bauhaus is trying to use these ideas of not only inclusivity, but also beauty to get people on board, to address the not in my backyard problem and to start a dialogue of how do we want to live? How do we want the world around us to look like so that we can both address the challenges that we're facing, that we have no choice, but have to start addressing now, but do it in a manner that 
makes people happy and makes people delighted to be part of this transition. Yeah, I think it's going beyond acceptance to conceiving of a future that we actually want to embrace as an idea. The other thing I found interesting about the Tovo project was what Alina said. Uh, you spoke about the sort of this global bridging aspect, but also the bridging of the very the simplest building technology, Earth, with the most highly advanced technologies we have today. So the 3D printing and the robotics. And maybe the last thing I'll mention is that I find it quite elegant, actually. Again, it's it's almost beautiful <laughs> that the new European Bauhaus itself is an example of the kind of policy creativity and policy innovation that it itself is trying to foster in, in other areas in terms of um, new ideas. Exactly. And I think a key word here is experimentation. That was something that Edward was talking about, but I think that looking at the challenge we have with moving towards a carbon neutral society, this concept of experimenting, trying things is so important because we really have to do things very differently, have to see what works, what doesn't work. And especially when we're thinking about policy, often there are so many challenges and processes are very slow and institutions are stubborn and unflexible. And I think creating space for experimentation and also maybe inspiring people, also inspiring the policymakers in the European Union to see, okay, this is how we can do things. This is how we can bring different sectors together to bring that change. This is something that I found personally very inspiring. So I think that's a word that should be maybe, you know, placated in every room in every European institution. We need to experiment to bring forward this change to climate neutral society. Yeah. And not all those experiments are going to work, but that's just part of innovation process. Exactly. And that's yeah. something we need to embrace. Mm -hmm. So I hope that the spirit of new European Bauhaus will continue being central to the European Green Deal and all the next policy initiatives and movements that we'll, we'll see in the next years. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today, our 13th in the series. We hope you have been inspired by today's discussion on the role of creativity and design in creating a sustainable and inclusive future for the EU. And of course, we also welcome you to join our webinar series. You can learn more about it and sign up for upcoming webinars on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. To be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes, you can follow our Instagram channel at greendealbigdeal. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple and Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection. The Ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Chiara Mazzetti. Eva Evashuch, Ricardo Faber, and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Abley. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Hahn. Special thanks to Liliana Sala, Leonard Wicke, Camilla Bausch, and Michael Lawrence.